You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today, we're airing a best-of-show featuring interviews with noted island musicians. We begin with Henry Capono, who contributed to Hawaii's cultural renaissance in the 1970s as part of the celebrated folk-pop duo Cecilio and Capono. They were among the first of their generation to find commercial success. Longtime HBR arts and culture reporter Noe Tanigawa sat down with Henry Capono to learn about his music that was the optimistic soundtrack during a period of profound change. I grew up in Kapahulu. Parents full-blood Hawaiian? Full-blooded Hawaiian. Yep. Hmm. How did you feel that growing up? Being Hawaiian? Well, there wasn't that big of an emphasis on being Hawaiian back then, you know. My parents never really spoke Hawaiian in front of us because their experience was that they would get uh, punished for speaking Hawaiian in school or or in the public or wherever they were. So they didn't want us to, to experience that same thing, so they wouldn't talk teach us Hawaiian. They just had this rich language they could use to talk about you. Yeah. <laughs> but they did teach me about aloha, so that was most important. It's really the key to Hawaii and Hawaiian, being Hawaiian. It's knowing what that is. It's not just the word. It's it's so many things. What comes to mind when you say it's so many things? Uh, yeah. um, I think it has um, things like love. Love is love. Happiness is happiness. Joy, joy is joy. But aloha is all of that, if you feel it. It could just be a word to most people, but if you know what it, what it feels like, then it becomes more mm-hmm. spiritual and more of a, uh, a gift. So. Are you from a big family? Um, eight of us. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. five, who were the musicians? Five sisters and two brothers. Oh. I'm the only one who went professional. We all play by ear. My dad played a ukulele, and he would come home from work and sit down in his chair, pick up his ukulele, play, go to sleep, (laughs) take a nap, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I learned how to play ukulele from him. Mm -hmm. But just really small kind. I really was uh, more interested in sports, you know. There's a lot of athletes in my family. Baseball um, first. I played baseball and Little League, and um, I did really well, really well. And then I got a scholarship for baseball to go to Punau. And I ended up playing baseball maybe for one season, and then they told me they they had a football program there. So I went, all right. Well, while football was my passion, music was my hobby, and then I went to Far East, and then music became my passion, and football was gone already. Uh-huh. I guess the story, your your band was booked in the Far East, and uh, maybe the tour fell through or something, and you were... Yeah, six weeks, we'll be in um, Singapore, Hong Kong, Thailand, yeah, let's do it. So two years later, I, didn't, I got home, and I was a musician. Oh. Oh. <laughs> got in your 10,000 hours. <laughs> oh. oh, I know. When I look back at it, back at that, um, I believe that it was a lesson, school of hard knocks. You know, I got it in two years. You had all that under your belt and returned to Honolulu maybe, what, 1969, 1970? 71, I think. 71. Yeah, I came back at the end of uh, 71. And then 72, I was playing around Waikiki. And then 73, uh, mm-hmm. I met Cecilio. Actually, I knew Cecilio before I went to Vietnam because mm. uh, he was in a group called the Unicorn. Mm. Definitely remembered the band. So when I got home, my friend, I don't know if you remember Johnny Sara. He used no. to do caricatures, but he says, oh, hey, you know this guy, Cecilio Rodriguez? I said, oh, yeah, man, Unicorn. He goes, yeah, you guys would sound good together. I said, yeah, I think we would. So I guess somehow he talked some people into um, bringing Cecilio over. So they flew him over. I, think. <laughs> I mean, so when did you first <laughs> play together, and what was that like? Well, when we uh, finally got together, our friends... Uh, did a dinner out in Sunset at this guy's place. Yeah, we sat down. We ate with uh, maybe about less than a dozen of maybe ten people. We ate, and then we picked up our guitars and 
We said, well, let's start playing something. So we played. The first song we played was uh, 4 and 20. And then we played that, and then we looked at each other and go, it was like we practiced, you know. It was like we rehearsed it. And everybody at oh, the at the dinner there. looked at he, at at us and went, whoa that was amazing, and then uh, so we played about maybe three songs, and we were blown away, and we said well when are we gonna get together? So what, we got. What did it feel like? It was just felt like uh, like we've been together for a long time, mm-hmm. you know, but we've only just met. But the thing is, we listen to the same. We like the same music. We listened to the same songs. So when we first decided we were going to get together and got together, we knew all, all these songs. Like so who, did you, was, who did you bring to the room with you, kind of? You know? Loggins and Messina. Who was out? Loggins Messina, James Taylor. Um, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Sure. Um, you know, all those, all those guys. Oh, you know, what? Santana, Elvin Bishop. Young Rascals. Mm-hmm. Young Rascals yeah. are one of my favorite. <laughs> so we got together one day, learned 30 songs, and we were ready to play. And our first gig was at, was it the Sea? Out in Haleiwa, they used to have a seafair or something. Small house like yeah. that. Little. And they had a rock band that was playing. That was the main act, and we were the opening act. So we played our songs. All covers. Yeah, all covers mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, we were just kind of getting to know each mm-hmm. other. That band, I think a year later, that band opened for us. Everything happened real fast. No joke. Yeah. Did you kind of make your debut at one of those Sunshine Crater Festival things, the 73? Actually, we did a Crater Festival. We played on the small stage. Uh We drew a lot of people. And we're doing our thing. But then our big break was when, you know, we're playing at a place called Rainbow Villa. Where was that? It was right in Kalakaua, at the end of Kalakaua, by, um, by the wave. Oh, okay, by Hobron. Right next to the wave. So we were playing there, and nobody was there. Um, nobody came for three months. <laughs> nobody knew who we was. But uh-huh. so it was a good chance for us to rehearse okay. and just and drink tequila. And start writing, or what? When did that uh, yeah, and we were writing as well. Mm-hmm. We were writing. And then we had an opportunity to open for Frank Zappa. And then... Oh. We played, did our 15 minutes, and we had a big response, a great response. Was it at the arena? At Civic. Civic Civic Auditorium. I know, I'm flashing back on all kinds of things. Frank Zappa at Civic Auditorium. Wow, yeah. We had a big response, and we were walking out, packed our guitars, walking out, and Frank Zappa comes out, and he says, Where are you guys going? He says, uh, oh, we got a gig down in Waikiki. He goes, well, they want you back. You know, get back up there and, uh, you know, give them what they want. So we went back out there and we played Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. Oh, my and, gosh. And That's a people, didn't, people didn't stop uh. cheering. And so we, we left. Went to our gig at the Rainbow Villa, and there was a line outside around the block. You go, wow, they must have hired somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> no. So we we walked in the door and you know our seats were still there and people were waiting for us. They were like, "Oh, there's those guys." We looked at each other, going, "That must be us." So, so that was it. I think eight months later, we filled the house every night. It was amazing. Wow! You know, lines were outside oh, till yeah. one o'clock in the morning. Oof, oof. You know, really good stuff. Yeah, it was just amazing. And so that was where kind of the first album was was nurtured and, and yeah. So we were playing a lot of we started playing a lot of cover tunes in the beginning, and towards the end we were playing a lot of our own song, songs. Oh man! And people were really um, enjoying our our songs because a lot of those songs were about us, were about our life lifestyle then, not the just the what we were doing, but what. We were surrounded by everybody was doing it, you know. So I think everybody related to to our songs. And then we did our first album. You know what's a great song on there? Song for Someone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I wrote that for my mom. She was out hanging their clothes outside. And where we lived in Kapahulu, you know, next door was uh, this guy had his, um, I forget what they call those pigeons, where they fly around and they come back home. Homing Homing pigeons. pigeons. A lot of people had those. (laughs) A lot of people had that. (laughs) The backyard. And then, you know, they had dogs and and they had chicken and it was really cool. 
Everybody took care of each other. Parents, our parents knew my friends. My friends' parents knew my, my parents. Everybody knew each other. It was safe, you know. We never locked our doors, you know. Um, I remember we'd be eating, having lunch out in the yard. Somebody would walk by, some stranger or somebody, and my mom would say, come, come, come eat. Invite them over to have some, you know, eat with us and then to be on their way. And you don't do that nowadays, you know. Oh, I know those yards in Kapahulu with the mango tree. Yeah. <laughs> the mango tree, yeah. I used to climb it all the time. I'm trying to concentrate on something that's fresh in my mind. Dogs are barking, the traffic's passing, and my tongue is tired. But I can't hear a single word I'm singing. You're listening to a Hana Ho show on The Conversation. We're re-airing Noe Tanigawa's interview with composer, guitarist, and vocalist Henry Kapono Kaihui, best known for being one half of the iconic Hawaiian duo Cecilio and Kapono. The group's self-titled debut album was a massive hit when it came out in 1974. It featured nine original tracks and started like this. Soaring like a bird, I'm flying When you dropped that first album, Cecilio and Capone, the green cover, the yellow shirt. I mean, so memorable, right? Every single song, all killer, no filler. This is one of those you can play right through. The first one, feeling just the way I do. Any any album's going to start like that. You've got to expect a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, how how, how did you guys work together writing? Um, We wrote um, individually. So we would bring a song and go, oh, let's work this out. And then we'd arrange it together. You know, If it was my song, I'd sing it. He'd do the harmonies. If it was his song, I'd do the harmonies. He'd do the melody. And it just worked out that way. Yeah, let's see. Now, what were you writing at that time? Um, which of these songs were yours? Friends? Right. Oh, yeah. So good. I wrote Friends in um, California. Our first gig in California was at a place called the Ironworks. Actually, we painted what is now known as Silicon Valley. You know, because we were dark skin, long hair, hippies. When we'd walk in, uh, families would be having dinner, and we'd walk in, and everybody would stop talking. And then it, everything started to turn around, because kids from Hawaii were going to school at Stanford and all these schools around there. And they heard we were in town, so it was packed. And then um, we had invited to go down to L.A. to um, play for um, the record companies at the Troubadour. Oh, God. Really big make-it-or-break-it venue. Oh, that that night, I think, um, who was there? Rick Springfield was there. Bruce Springsteen was there. All these guys that were uh, trying to get on the label. We did our 15 minutes, and after that, we got uh, entertained by all these different labels, and then we went with Columbia. Columbia was the biggest one in the world. Walked away with a prize from there. Well, we signed everything off, but, uh, you know, that's how it was during the back in the days. Mm -hmm. So we gave it away, but thank God the music was so good and made such a big impact here in Hawaii. That has kept us alive and kept us going, and um, you know I, I, I'm so grateful for it. We're just uh, in the right place at the right time. Yeah, we put it all together somehow. Yeah, and then we put the, did our first album, 
And then the band that backed us up was James Taylor's band. <laughs> See, that's what you get for working in Columbia. Yeah, right? I know. Yeah. So that's the band behind this first album of yours. First album, yeah. And, you know, because you, you hit the party songs, you come on with a lifetime party. Lifetime party, you and me. And you, you dig down deep for some feelings as well. If this world were a flower garden And your smiling face a flower therein Sunflower with a golden hair To look at it, I would know I mean, you You know, what? what is the Hawaiian Renaissance to you? I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it was that a lot of the artists were starting to write their own songs. A lot of artists had their own uh, identity. I mean, you had Ox or Siwen. After us was Kalapana, you had Country Comfort. All these groups were coming out and making their own music. Right. Uh, And there's comedy, too. Comedy, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Booga Booga, Rapper Finger. It was a great time. Mm-hmm. And throughout your music career, though, I've, there's this, this continuous sense of positivity. Walking on the sunny side of the street. However, Henry, you totally stabbed me in the heart with One Man 2020. Oh, yeah. I was working with uh, Greg Monday. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. we were in California, and I had to do one more song, and I... Wanted to do this one song and find all these um, these quotes by by great people. On the day of the the recording, I just started writing. One man say I'll make an excellent deal on your home and all of your land. One man say I can get you dirt cheap and expensive term life insurance plan. And one man say I can sell you this fine looking automobile for a very good price and no strings attached. One man say, I'll make you a rich man in 30 days, and my friend, I'll give you your money back. Give you your money back. One man say, I would do my best for my country, my people, my life, and my earth. One man say, I have the power of the people, how much can I hold on to as I walk on the shifting times of my birth? And one man say, with your vote, I promise to do such and such, this and that, all you ask will you give me a chance. And one man said it's time for change, rearrange, and let the dreams of the people step forward and dance. Let the dreams of the people step forward and dance. Which one do we believe? Let the dreams of the people step forward and dance. Comes out in the 2020 version. It's kind of Dylan-esque, so it takes you back to that era. And But the speaking form is kind of hip-hop, too, right now, so it fits in completely. And what you're saying, 50 years later, it's the same it really says something. Yeah, it, it says everything, you know, everything I'm feeling and everything I think um, we need to we need to uh, be aware of as um, human beings. Having kids really made me think more about my not just my future but their future. You know, so everything. Um, I started writing was with that thought in mind. Even till today, I write for for that, for their future. Which one do we let lead? Life goes on without you. Which one? Whoa. I guess I'd just end with Highway and the Sun just because it's just so... Yeah, Highway and the Sun, I wrote that in California. We were on a tour going from Los Angeles to San Francisco. And between between Ventura and Santa Barbara, which Mm -hmm. is like about maybe 16 miles. Uh It was uh, springtime. You know, on Highway 101, between Ventura and Santa Barbara, 
is the ocean, Pacific Ocean on one side, yeah. and then the California Hills. It was springtime. California Hills was beautiful. I said to my manager, I said, wow, you know, you guys have beautiful flowers here. And I just, you know, we were all kind of stoned, too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and he, he, he said, man, those are weeds. <laughs> I go, man, you guys have beautiful weeds here. <laughs> I, I said, I, I'm going to write a song. And I wrote the song. By the time we got to Santa Barbara, the song was written already. Highway in the Sun. And, yeah, it's a, I love that song. I just, a lot of people love that song. You know? They can relate to it. It's like going on that drive. You know? so. That time of day. That time of day, that time of year, you know. And that time. Have you ever seen the yellow busted mountain? When California sun shines in the sky. Have you ever seen them dancing softly in the wind, painted night? There's a happy kind of feeling when the sun's out. That was Noe Tanigawa catching up with singer-songwriter Henry Capono. He performs at Duke's on Waikiki Beach from 4 to 6 every Sunday, and he hosts a YouTube channel called Henry's House. We'll share links to where you can catch up with all of his music at hawaiipublicradio.org. Everybody, you should see it. You got to feel it. When you're riding down the highway and the sun. Everybody, you should see it. You got to feel it. When you're riding down the highway and the sun. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Reality TV is full of villains you love to hate and hate to love. And for one villain, the haters give her a boost. Confidence was something that really gained over the years of rejection. And I used my haters and my doubters to fuel my fire. Christine Quinn of the reality show Selling Sunset talks about her new book. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com. back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We're sharing a Hana Ho show of musicians interviewed by longtime HBR arts and culture reporter Noe Tanigawa. The 1970s was a banner decade for Hawaiian music. Among the celebrated artists from that era is the band Kalapana, formed by founding members Mackie Fury, DJ Pratt, Milani Bilyeu, and Kirk Thompson. The group released its first album in 1975. A year later, their sophomore effort hit the national billboard chart at number 197, ahead of The Temptations and Tower of Power. Of the band's original lineup, only multi-instrumentalist Kirk Thompson remains. Over the years, he's played with Hawaii's top musicians and worked closely with Tom Moffat, the promoter who introduced rock and contemporary pop to Hawaii. Local musicians were treated like second-class citizens. We broke the biggest nightclub in Waikiki. 1970, finally. The place was called the Red Noodle. It was in the back of the International Marketplace, right behind Don Holes. <laughs> okay. Don was helping me out, too, and all that. It was very exciting. We were on our way to the Crater Festival at that time. The first one. It <laughs> must be. Yes. We had a huge battle of bands, and uh, we played Tower Power and Santana music. <laughs> so that's the type of band that we were. What band was this at that time? It was called Pacific. 
Akin and Rolling at the time, and another band called Beowulf, which is another outstanding band from Waipahu. We were the two bands who had a battle of bands who won the uh, contest from Tom Hoffitt. They had three stages inside the Diamond Head Crater, main stage, rock stage, and the folk stage. And so we were battling who was going to go on the main stage. <laughs> so we landed up on the rock stage, but that was fine with us. At least we made it to the, the Creator Festival. It was a big deal for local bands at the time. But uh, conquering Waikiki was our first step at our younger age. It was a big deal at the time. <laughs> and that was too bad for Kalapan. Wow. You're describing a music scene that really was so different. Where were local people playing music? Uh, in the smaller clubs on the outskirts, the various areas around the islands and things like that. There was a lot of talent in Hawaii. <laughs> and we thought we were just good enough as the rest of them were. And so, I, I really, I, man, I kept blasting away there because I, I knew we had a lot of great players over here could really play. And like who? Every, oh, like my guitar player was John Raposa. John Raposa was our George Benson over here. And we had monsters. Look at Michael Paolo, okay, who joined oh, yeah. sitting in the dark over here waiting for their chance in the, for the breakout. Like Henry was, like I said, from Kapuhulu. He represented all of Kaimiki and Kapuhulu area. There was artists like that from every district around the islands. Really? And, <laughs> That's the way it was in Hawaii. We were holding our ground as much as we could. And uh, finally, we pushed out all the mainland bands. And we took over Waikiki. <laughs> but it took that many years. I started in the 60s, you know, easily. We were slamming away at the 60s. They finally broke in the 70s, you know, right about 1970. When local like, bands were let in, huh? Yeah, because we were all in the outskirts of Waikiki. You know, and that was when the local bands made it onto the stages at the Crater Festival, too. Yes, it was all part of the whole scene. But the pioneers of this whole movement, which I call the movement, is people like Dick Jensen. There was a club in Waikiki called the Lemon Tree, which was uh, actually called the Cheetah Way back in the 50s. Right across from the Waikiki Wall, where everybody used to slide on. Yeah. He was our James Brown over here. He made it to the Ed Sullivan Show. But people don't realize what he did for Hawaii, and what that all did to inspire all the rest of the next generation and the next generation who are coming up. I loved what you were saying about the different areas of Oahu having their own bands and their own music. Talk about that. Oh, okay. We had huge battle of the bands. Like Kalihi, I'll tell you the two areas that had the strongest bands. <laughs> the Filipinos, Kalihi and Waipahu. They're known for having the strongest bands. All right. And uh, what happened was uh, at that period of time, there was a thing called the Million Dollar Party Tom started at the uh, Waikiki Shell. And uh, the two winners of the uh, Battle of the Bands were Klee, I believe, and, uh, and Waipahu. <laughs> okay. And they were fantastic. I mean, they were like the Beatles and Rolling Stones. The Undertakers did the song Rosalind, which sounded fantastic. And the Spirits did the uh, double shot. And they were going to make a 45. That was a grand prize. And they were the first recordings other than Hawaiian music playing contemporary pop music from Hawaii. So you're saying there was this high level of music making. Oh, yes. I mean, 10,000 kids were there screaming. The kids were really, they were hungry for it. The islands were hungry for it. And so when we finally came along, we finally filled that gap in because the kids had enough over here. They wanted their heroes, so to speak, because they all felt that the island guys were just as good as the rest of the guys. C and K were kind of the first to break through there sure. on the yeah. national scene. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Henry's about three years older than I was, so he was another generation right before us. We were under the same management. And so what happened, we, we replaced them when they took off the Columbia Records, so to speak. We were under the same manager who built the nightclub for them. Who was that? Ed Guy. He was very smart to put this whole thing together. He saw the movement, and he put Henry and Cecilio in a club called the Rainbow Villa, right in uh, Waikiki, when you come out over the Makale uh, Bridge. Henry and Cecilio started there. Then he needed another band to take their place. He handpicked us all and put us together over there and we went, shoot, we're ready to go. You and DJ Pratt had known each other for a long time. Oh, yeah. We're colorful. Yeah. Yeah, what was he like? What kind of guy was he? Well, DJ was very calm, very, uh, very smart. He was very talented. I mean, he was very skillful. He was a hard worker, too. And uh, we all were. What was Malani Bill you like? Pretty much the same. Most of the musicians were all on the same channel because it took the same kind of drive and uh, energy. And uh, and so everybody had one thing in common. And, uh, 
making it wasn't all that easy. You know, we had a lot of competition and all that kind of stuff. What was Mackie Fury like as a person? Oh, Mackie was one talented son of a gun. I knew him from Kamiki Intermediate School, and I used to jam with him at school in the bathrooms and everything like that. And we were all young kids. <laughs> He was writing songs back then. How about that? He was the first guy to even start writing songs way back then. And, uh, mm. But he was very talented, and he was, uh, he was going someplace. He was, he was very skilled. And, uh, what was kind of the first song that you folks put together? My goodness. Well, I, I'll move forward. Right after CNK took off to Columbia Records, our manager, Ed Guy, he, he had a chain of clothing stores called The Shop. And that's why our place was called the top of the shop because he built the nightclub on top of the shop. <laughs> okay. And so our nightclub was called the top of the shop. Like I said, he had just put the CNK on the map, so to speak. And he wanted to do, do something different by why don't I train these done X? And we went, whoa, we're getting ready to go here. He said, I'm going to train you guys. We're going to do this thing right. And I went, okay. So we were kind of handpicked and uh, we were put together. And each person was uh, set to do a certain job. That's how boy bands are formed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, are, you, are you saying that he kind of put the four of you together? Yeah, and me and Deej were already together. Mm-hmm. Me and Deej in another band called Sunlight out at uh, Hawaii Kai in the uh, Chuck Steakhouse. Oh. Aki and Milani are playing upstairs in another room in Hawaii in the, in the same mall. And we all knew that uh, Tom was uh, on the hunt. So we put the band together and uh, we started getting ready for the, the times when things were going to break in. Uh, and Henry gave us a couple of heads up and things like that. So, you know, and so they needed another band to fill in when they took off. And uh, we raised our hands and went, okay, that'll be us. Rolling summer, winter through the day. That guy built us our own nightclub called the Top of the Shop, down off Kiyomoku. Right there where Kentucky Fried Chicken is, our club was right there. <laughs> they started training us over there. So the club took off. It was huge. And we worked seven nights a week. And uh, we honed our skills and things like that. He had put uh, Henry and them on Columbia Records. He was actually studying their, the recording industry as well. And as he watched, he was watching them, you know, how, how much money they would put behind them or back them, or how much they would push. <laughs> you know what? He said, I'll take my own money and I can do that. Okay. And he says, you know what, we're going to form our own record label. Let's do it. So we formed our own record company and everything like that. And he moved us all up to uh, California. We started off in Huntington Beach, so to speak. We had to work our way up to Bob Dylan's house up in uh, one one of his homes that he owned up in Malibu. You guys are taken off the streets in Honolulu where we're trying to get a music scene together. And you're put in this recording studio situation in L.A. Now, all of this took took a lot of years now. We're in the top of the shop for almost three years Uh, we had to build up all that audience and things like that. And then uh, people were asking, when are you guys going to record? When are you guys going to record? And there was a movement going on, so to speak. And the movement was growing uh, in the United States, too, as well as in Hawaii. What movement was that? This big uh, music movement, the pop music scene. Electric was crossing over into acoustic. And it was explosive. And then that's when Woodstock came out. I don't know. How would you describe the music you folks were making? In Kalapana, we crossed over. Okay, what happens? We were started off as acoustic. And that's where Mackie and Amon came in because they were, mm-hmm. they were acoustic guys. So to speak, me and DJ came off electric, but we could play acoustic. We could do anything. Can you talk about, for example, Naturally and sure. how the sounds came together for that song? Malani wrote the song, and uh, each uh, member was uh, in charge of uh, writing X amount of songs for their first album. Since Melania and Mackie were the uh, main uh, vocalists in the bands, they were in charge of writing three songs a piece, and then me and DJ had to write two and two, and that would be the total for the whole album. And so um, naturally, when he wrote it, it was, it was beautiful. I mean, it was perfect. And acoustic. It was acoustic at the time and very gentle. It was just perfect for the, for the song and for the times and everything like that. Malani just played it on his guitar first for you guys? And... Oh, yeah. It came natural. Thank you. 
We're talking with Kirk Thompson, the only surviving original member of Kalapana, a band that shaped Hawaii's music scene starting in the 1970s. Original band members became stars in their own right. Singer-guitarist Mackie Fury, Malani Bilyeu, DJ Pratt, and Kirk Thompson. Kalapana would often open concerts with this song right here, Thompson's composition, Black Sand. The way Thompson describes Honolulu's music scene in the early 70s when they started, it's like locals storming the citadel of Waikiki because young guys, was mostly guys, were making a lot of music in Honolulu. Rock and roll started in the 50s. So 1956, we had rock bands here. So in the 1960s, we had tons of rock bands here. Then naturally, we wanted to get it started expanding. That's why I brought up the thing with the only mainland bands were, were playing in Waikiki because the club owners then would only trust mainland bands to handle the uh, audiences, the, the tourists and things like that coming in. They wouldn't trust the uh, local bands. They weren't considered good enough. <laughs> I said, no, we're just as good. We're just as good. So it took another whole another generation to break that kind of thing. Then the Kalapana and CK thing came in. So it took a couple of generations to break that ice. How did Don Ho make it nationally? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, he was in control of the whole uh, industry over here. And people didn't even understand that. Without entertainment, the tourists would have no place to go. So it was a huge industry called entertainment. <laughs> but the value of that period, not even the state of Hawaii, okay? Don single-handedly did. Same thing with Tom. And the need for pop music and radio and all nine yards. They did it silently. And he went about the business very quietly. And the demand was just there. The demand was huge. He can hand it to Elvis Presley. My goodness. Yeah, I <laughs> guess he put Hawaii on the map, you know, by coming here. And... Yeah, and Tom Hoffa was the one who drove him all around the island. <laughs> Tom was very <laughs> He was such a lovable guy. And oh. with Sweetie, his wife, they were just this easygoing combination of, of localness. He made them feel so comfortable. I was talking to Tom. He said, oh, yeah, when Elvis came, he could have jumped inside his limousine, but he wanted to jump in Tom's car. And so they went to go eat, you know. <laughs> they were hungry, so they grabbed a hamburger, you know. I went and listened to Tom tell me, I go, oh, my goodness, Tom, you. He, he's so down to earth, but I went, okay. <laughs> yeah, he really. But he was relaxed. He was comfortable. You know, he remembered it. You know, it seemed maybe like a crazy idea to have a music festival inside a Diamond Head crater, but I don't know. People just did those kinds of things. It, well, the whole United States was exploding with uh, the music scene, and record sales were gigantic at the time. And so uh, music was very, very big in, in the whole culture of everything. And so just like in other parts of the United States, Hawaii was very explosive. So Tom Moffat was on top of it. He knew what he was doing. And the demand was great. We were hungry. We were waiting <laughs> to do it. And um, Mackie was, uh, I tell you what, Mackie was writing before Kalapana. He could just dial up a song anytime and write about any subject and, uh, and st start playing a song. Moon and Stars. There, there's a lot. Everybody has their own favorites, so to speak. After seeing CK take off the Columbia Records, we started taking it very seriously and get a little more organized in our, our minds. So finally, we had some direction, okay, and purpose, and it, it made it a lot more easier and a lot more clear what we were doing and why we were doing it. We had a timeline and everything that we were shooting for. We had a nightclub that we had to practice and hone down our skills and everything. We knew that we were going up to the mainland to record. We just didn't predict the whole venture, so to speak. Yeah. What about Nightbird? Can you talk Mac about that song? Oh, there you go, Mackie. He was a Paul McCartney of, of, the, of the group, and uh, he could write prolifically. I, I knew him when from Kamiki school, and he, was doing, he could imitate anybody, I mean, anything. And uh, copying the records, when we were young kids, the whole thing in Hawaii was sounding just like the record. Mackie used to hate, oh, it sounded like Paul McCartney's song, man. He goes, oh, I wrote it, man. So we used to tease each other. But uh, we finally broke out of that uh, darkness, and we finally came into an original. Uh, and then uh, learning how to write and how to uh, deliver songs and things like that. Yeah. We learned a lot. Before we leave this, you folks were making music right through the Hawaiian Renaissance. Um, how did the Hawaiian Renaissance affect you all 
Uh, it didn't affect us too much because we were kind of leading the way. And both CNK uh, and Kalapana, were, we, had, we had a job to do because we were breaking the way because there's no bands assigned to major record labels. This was a big movement that started way, way before. That's why I brought up the movement uh, earlier. There were a lot of talented groups that didn't get the break that we got. And we were late as far as the rest of the world is concerned. And Hawaii was out here in the middle of the Pacific Ocean surrounded by water. And we had tremendous amounts of talent here. And there was a generation prior before us. I'd love to send you a picture of the museum because there was almost 30 to 40 artists on the walls and they're all national recording artists. Along the shore, just me and you and starry sky. The first album was a kill-off. <laughs> and, and what would you say happened in the evolution of Kalapana? Both CNK and Kalapana inspired the next generation to want to uh, shoot a little bit higher than okay. just make the Waikiki. Look at Bruno Mars. <laughs> He's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. He conquered it. When, he, when I see him on those stadiums performing all on a global scale, he convinced himself as not only the people, but he convinced himself. He believed in what he was doing. I'm so proud of him that uh, he took it to the highest level that anybody could, any artist from any place in the world. That's Kirk Thompson, original member of the legendary band Kalapana, talking with Noe Tanigawa. Thompson founded the National Music Foundation of the Pacific and the Honolulu Museum of Contemporary Pop. And after years of negotiating for the rights, that iconic first Kalapana album is back on vinyl at Oahu Record Store, Aloha Got Soul. Vocalist star Kalahiki has a repertoire that ranged from bluesy ballads to offbeat Broadway to the Queen's Songbook. She's won a Nahoku Hanohano Award for her album Salt, a collection of jazz standards. Here's a rebroadcast of her interview with Noe Tanigawa, where Kalahiki describes the feeling of singing and her connection with the mele of Queen Liliu Okalani. Growing up with both sides of my family fourth generation in the church, really everybody sang all the time, five-part really? harmony. What? So it wasn't like... What am I missing? I kind of thought everybody in the world did live that way. Oh. It wasn't until I was in high school at the University Lab School, my teacher, Auntie Nola Nahulu, I really do believe oh. I chose to go to the lab school instead of Kamehameha because of her. Force of nature. Yeah, who also introduced me to my first Queen songbook. The Hawaii Youth Opera Chorus rehearsed mm-hmm. in the basement, and in this choir room... At about 16, all of us in the choir had the opportunity to audition for a Claude Debussy piece called Salut Printemps. That was the first time I heard my voice uh, by itself Hmm. next to um, my peers. Hmm. I guess that's what the experience was. Singing out, what did that feel like? From the inside out, I I was used to that, but yeah. What did you see? What did I see? Yeah, from the outside. Oh, gosh. <laughs> right. Like, uh, a girl is standing in shock. Kind of like she's just standing in shock because she's like, whoa, what is that? What, what is that sound? What is that sound? Why does it sound different from the rest of the girls? What did it sound like? It just sounded big. <laughs> it sounded big. Yeah. And um, that solo taught me a lot. And that space taught me a lot. And then... When I graduated from high school, that was my first uh, job singing for Japanese weddings in Kwaiao Church, nine times a day. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you sing? Nine times a day, I sang the Hawaiian wedding song, Kekalineo, and the Queen's Prayer, just the first verse of it. And I was a freshman at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I took an ethnic studies class from a teacher named Deviana McGregor, and I cannot recall exactly what happened. I just realized that I, it was in that um, time and space that I really learned the history of Hawaii. The history of the overthrow? Yes, the continued illegal occupation since 1893, correct. I, I cannot even recall how it is. I, I, I learned it or figured it out and why mm-hmm. it didn't come to me in the way it was taught in high school or prior to, prior to that moment. 
but in yeah. pieces it came. It in pieces it came. I remember being so angry and thinking that um, I just really, I, I really, I, I can't, I can't handle this, um, this anger and this. I think in Hawaiian we call it komaha. This, uh, this weight. I remember thinking I couldn't handle, and I kind of ran away. I quit the job. I traveled um, a lot through Europe. Mm. I really just ran away from knowing more, digging more into the history, or singing the song even. I literally ran away from the resonance. Um, but <laughs> it was funny too because at the same time, the Queen's Songbook was published and came out, and I was still singing with Auntie Nola in a choir called Kawai Ola Ona Pukani Leo. And it was our job to resonate her songbook in all of these beautiful different spaces throughout Europe. But I still was not allowing myself to really do the investigation into the songs. I was just learning them and singing them. Mm-hmm. So even if I ran away, I really couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. That was just my process. Uh, Lili U describes how she felt like the betrayal and and her commitment to remain nonviolent. She describes that in her autobiography. How she acted and how that all played out is a testament to a certain kind of person. Mm-hmm. I've started to investigate her melee from the lens of of artist because I am an artist and I would say this was about 2013 and that my my college music teacher John Senor suggested that we we engage in what we named the Lili'u project what really is literally our investigation of her melee it, it meant learning the songs it meant um, sharing them um, and when there were situations of Kuleana in concern for the care of the land, like for Mauna Kea. Her music gave me a Kuleana. Uh, besides the fact that my family is uh, from Kohala and Kauai and that is my mountain, um, like I showed up and I had a purpose. I had a very specific job. Do you want to sing now? I can totally sing now because I really just do it without any... Yep, I know you do. Okay, um, let's do it. So Yeah, is that okay? Yeah, okay, well. The very first verse is the, is the verse I would sing nine times a day. And it, I would say the first verse is the most powerful song in my existence. And, it, and, and, and she really just pulls it all together and says that your love, oh God, your love up there in the heavens and your oya i'o, your truth in the sanctity of this place. Hmm. That's really her constant reminder to me that if heaven and earth and these things that we fight against are really not a duality, but, but a balance of truth. And then really what she always comes to is aloha. And this like learning of aloha for this Hawaiian right here, I'm talking about myself, is just so... It's so comprehensive. It's so continuous. It's so time immemorial. Your loving mercy is as high as heaven, and your truth so perfect. I live in sorrow, in prison. You are my light, your glory, my support. Behold not with malevolence the sins of man, but forgive and cleanse. 
That singer-songwriter star Kalahiki with longtime HBR arts and culture reporter Noe Tanigawa. And that is it for this Hanaho Music Show on this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we'll dive into the recent elections in the Philippines. And we will mark National EMS Week with a story about paramedics finding therapy in a taro patch. You can listen back to our past shows on the conversation page on the HBR website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiano, and Lillian Song. Our theme music is courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. <laughs>